This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Good afternoon to you. I am Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you today? I'm doing well. I've gotten – the allergies hit me. It hit me. Pollen. My car yeah. is yellow. My shoes are yellow. My dog is yellow. All the things. <laughs> we had a nice run of, like, rain every other day that was, yeah. was kind of keeping it down a little bit. But, um, you know, we've gone through a, a couple uh, gaps here in the rain. So uh. pollen, pollen's getting us good. But yes. that's okay because we've got a wonderful show lined up, and we're super excited – because it's Social Worker Month. Woo-hoo! We have made it to Social Worker Month, the month of April, and we are really, really excited to shine a light on uh, on some people who do some critical work and who do not get enough love. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on the first half of the show here today. And we are very pleased to welcome Adelia Darby on the show. She is a hospice-licensed clinical social worker. Adelia, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor. You're like a superhero to us, and I'm excited to have you on the show today. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in social work? Well, I am originally from Pennsylvania. Um, I have about a little over 18 years of um, social services, human services, social work services. We'll just combine it all together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have worked in managed care, behavioral health, medical, mental health settings. Um, I'm a clinical uh, supervisor for LCSWAs. Um, I have Fallen in love with hospice about 12 years ago, um, seven of which have been at Transitions Life Care. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say I had fallen in love, I had this opportunity 12 years ago um, to be able to be part of an experience I have never experienced before, um, which lands me to be here today. (laughs) That's wonderful. We greatly appreciate the work you do at Transitions, and I'm excited to share your story and your role with all of our listeners. So how does someone become a social worker? I know that we're going to talk a little bit about hospice social work and social work in general. Um, From the general side of things, how do you become a social worker, and what is training like? Oh, training is rough, I tell you. (laughs) You know, when people say, oh, well, just be a social worker, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, it takes about four years to even earn a, a BS, a bachelor's social worker wow. degree. Uh, it takes about two to three years to earn a master's in social work degree, um, depending if you're full-time, part-time, or advanced standing. Um, and it takes about two to five years to earn a doctorate in social work. Wow. Um, I, at myself, I I felt that the master's program, I felt like I was in big therapy for myself. <laughs> you really have to identify 
your stuff to be able to help other people. Mm-hmm. Social workers um, who want to work in a clinical setting must fulfill at least two years of supervised work experience before earning a licensure. So in order, you need to, in North Carolina, you, you have to apply first for the LCSWA, and then then you can start earning your clinical hours. Mm. Um, so it takes about a minimum of 3,000 hours of postgraduate paid employment in a clinical social work setting. So you can't accomplish that in less than um, two years, but no more than six years. And then you take your exam, your stressful exam. (laughs) (laughs) As if it wasn't a lot already, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And then, you know, then you pass and then you are a licensed clinical social worker. So... Um, typically people who want to do LCSW, they want to do therapy or just advance in their, in their skills, um, to become licensed and it shows that, Hey, we are, um, a profession that takes pride in what we do. Absolutely. And it shows in all of the work that you do in our organization. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about what a day in the life looks like and some of the main things that you do as a social worker? Every day is different. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So if I'm not conducting psychosocial assessments or coordinating care or providing counseling or psychotherapy, uh, intervening in client crisis situations or educating patients and families about their treatment or resources or lack of resources or being their cheerleader mm-hmm. or um, keeping them on track on what needs to happen to prevent any extra stress on them. Mm-hmm. Um, Every day is different. <laughs> it's a lot of, there, there's a lot of different components there. For a social worker who is not in the hospice field, what are some of the things that you, that you see um, the profession doing out in general social work? Oh, my goodness. We're in every facet of community life. <laughs> uh, from schools, drug and rehabilitation, veterinarians, Children, family care, hospitals, mental health clinics, senior centers, elected officials, private practice, prisons, military, corporations, and numerous public and private agencies. Wow. We are everywhere. Wow. That is incredible. So that brings up a great point. What kind of settings? You know, we hear a lot about hospice being a service. A lot of people get confused about hospice as a place, thinking that you're going somewhere, I'm going to hospice. Um, what kind of setting do you work in? Is it more in the home? Or are you doing other facilities? Or, or what does that look like for you and your role? For me, I'm hospice is a philosophy of care. It's wherever the person wants to be. It's not typically a, a place like you were saying. It's wherever it could be in a home, assisted living, independent living, um, 
if their home is in a shack or in the garage. I mean, it's wherever the person wants to be. Mm-hmm. Their end of life, where they want to die, um, safely in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I am stationed in the community, so I I go to all those places I identify. Um, the nursing homes, independent living, their regular home. Um, if we need to go to the hospital to coordinate care, um, but I'm mainly stationed in the community. Wonderful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and. Uh, you know, as you said, you're you're kind of everywhere. There's a lot of places that you are, and that's why it's so important for us to recognize social workers, and that's why we're doing this as a tip of the hat to National Social Work Month, and we're going to continue our conversation with Adelia Darby. She is a hospice-licensed clinical social worker with Transitions Life Care, and we've got more with her right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF News, Talk, Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF. With your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF News, Talk, Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Mary's Mary's such a kind person <laughs> that uh, she she didn't interrupt me in the first segment when I said that April is National Social Work Month and it's it really it's March so this is just an encore of National <laughs> Social Work Month you can't keep National Social Work Month into, it, you can't no. confine it to thirty one days no, all right absolutely not. we're we're doing an encore here and we're doing that with Adelia Darby she is the a hospice licensed clinical social worker and we've been having a conversation with her all about social work and what that is and what social workers do and now we we want to focus a little bit on the the challenges presented with social work. Yes, absolutely. Adelia, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the differences between palliative care and hospice social work before we dive into more of the challenges of these things? Sure, absolutely. Um, Palliative care social worker, they often engage engage with adjustment to illness, decision-making, and family coping along the illness trajectory. So, as they are battling their their illness uh, or receiving chemo or radiation treatment, um, they can utilize palliative care while doing those treatments. Whereas hospice social worker focus more specifically on end of life. Mm-hmm. Um, our job descriptions and tasks carry out just about the same. Um, our core responsibilities, and we're still doing a psychosocial assessment. We're still coordinating care providing counseling, psychotherapy, intervening in client crisis situations, educating patients and families about their treatment plan, and resources and providing support systems and putting support systems in place. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. So it's, it, I'm, I'm amazed at all the work that you all do. I know that there are probably many a challenges you face in your role every day with, um, you know, patients. We were talking about ethical decisions later on in the show at End of Life, and I think that um, you face a lot of these things. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges you see in your role every day? Um, I would have to say the biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges is that when people are discharged from the hospital and with hospice, um, they immediately think that hospice is going to come and provide um, that 24-7 care, um, AIDS coming, staying with them, um, and not really realizing that hospice, we come in to um, educate and support you on how to care for your loved one in the home. Um, We're there as a support system. Um, You can definitely call and have someone uh, call hospice 24-7, but it's not utilized to replace caregiving. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that we're providing that education that we're not there to do it all. We're there to empower you to be able to keep your loved one home safe at home. Mm -hmm. Um, People not, another challenge is people are not completing their healthcare power of attorney or advanced directives. Um, And you find that um, many people have different opinions or ideas of what the loved one wants. Um, And it doesn't matter if you have siblings of 15 or siblings of, or no siblings, um, not knowing the wishes or you know the wishes, but you struggle to honor those Mm -hmm. wishes is another challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, even for myself, my mom, she's never completed any type of legal documents and that was the most stressful stressful um time in my life trying to figure out her what you know what to do what her needs were and make those decisions so that is one of the things that i'm strongly that's something i immediately talk about with families um is did the health care power of attorney get completed mm-hmm. That's, you know, timely topic as next next week on the show, we're talking about National Healthcare Decisions Day coming up. And I'm excited about some of that content that we're going to talk about and dive into because those are such important documents so that people know what you want and what, what's important to you at the end of life. It's the greatest gift you can give whoever's going to represent. I mean, it just takes out the guesswork. Um, and I know it's hard to think about these things because um, a lot of people don't really want to think about those things. Um, they they kind of just want to live life, and mm-hmm. we're on this day in, day out of life. And if we think about death, then that means we are wishing it to happen sooner. And that's not the case. We mm-hmm. just want to be proactive. And once you get it done, I promise you the stress level goes down. Mm-hmm. You'll be proud of yourself that you completed it. Exactly. 
Adelia, can you talk to us about some of the more rewarding parts of your job? I know there's plenty of stress things that you deal with, but what are some of the more rewarding things that you do every day? (laughs) (laughs) Every day is not the same. Every day is different. Um, You can think that you have a a schedule in place and then it it just changes. Um, You don't know what to expect. Um, the most rewarding is having a wonderful group of clinical social workers I work with, uh, my community team. Um, when you have such support, not just for your patients, but for one another, you actually care about um, who you work with and helping one another out. Um, for me, being invited to such an intimate experience, I'm being invited in someone's home mm-hmm. to prepare someone to die. Um, that is such an honor. Mm-hmm. Um, meeting people of all walks of life. Um, I was. I remember Mary I was telling you about <laughs> you know my earliest time here at Transitions. Um, I had a, a new admission, and uh, the nurse and I we went in this rural area and walking in and meeting the patient and then coming out of her room and seeing that um, there was a shadow of a figure. I didn't understand what it was, but um, I finally realized that there was a full buck deer in the house. (laughs) 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 You don't know what to expect. Um, and this deer was from a baby all the way up to a full buck uh, with the antlers, the one antler hanging. <laughs> and so you just you never was in the wild at all. Um, and, and what do you say? You know, um, is that a deer? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, it's a deer. And don't you say anything. This is my pet. And. We go with it. It's, you know, it's the patient's safe. There's, I mean, we're being invited to their home. So um, you, you kind of go with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's such an honorable position you're in, you know, someone trusting you to come into their home and help them at the most important and critical moments of their life. And what an honor and something that you all do every day that, that has to be so rewarding. Can I also add that it, it, you know, when we go and meet our, our our patients, it's not always talking about death. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're doing life review, we're storytelling, we're laughing. I mean, there is humor and laughter, and you know, we're celebrating people's lives while they're still alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's admirable work, and it's work that uh, we're really happy to shine a spotlight on because, quite frankly, uh, you guys don't get that shine enough, and you, you truly deserve it. And Adelia, we want to thank you so much for your time today for chatting with us. Adelia Darby, she is a hospice-licensed clinical social worker with Transitions Life Care. Thank you so much for your time today and for chatting with us. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. We will. Hopefully we will not have any deer encounters, but 
you know, in the, in, the, in the world of radio, you just never know. I haven't had that one yet, but there's, there's quite frankly, still a lot of time to find out. But we've, we've got a lot more planned for the show today. Stick around. We're going to be uh, talking about ethical issues in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. And Mary, we're going to take a shift here and Mm -hmm. we're going to be discussing ethical issues at end of life. And this is something that I'm sure most people don't wake up wanting to think about, (laughs) but it is important. And it's it's why we have uh, these informative conversations here on the show. And uh, to help us along with this conversation, we are pleased to welcome Betsy Barton. Betsy is the Senior Associate for Learning and Research at Transitions Life Care, one of our own. Betsy, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited about this. I feel like I'm going back to grad school talking about ethics. Uh, Betsy, maybe kick us off. What is ethics and what are ethical problems and dilemmas? Okay. Well, first off, boy, let's not be back in grad school. What a nightmare, right? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I like to talk about things in ways that we can all just understand what the heck are we talking about mm-hmm. anyway. So ethics is a framework, you know, as I see it, ethics is a framework to step out of our emotions and our strongly held opinions and our you know, moral and religious beliefs and just kind of get a bird's eye view of what's happening in this situation and how can we address this, you know, kerfluffle that's Mm -hmm. going on. That's a good point. You know, what are some of the key principles of ethics at end of life? Well, what we often go to, you know, it's so wonderful that there, there's a system already. Um, So there's a guiding set of principles that can, kind of help us get out of that perfuffle where we have, you know, especially at the end of life, um, one family member might be upset with the other or the family doesn't understand what the provider's saying or the provider doesn't understand why the family's not just like, hey, why don't they follow my advice? Um, so there's a couple of ethical principles that anchor the situation, you know, or the anchor the way we look at a situation. So one of them is autonomy. Mm-hmm. So this is just you know, that, hey, it's my body and it's my health. I should be able to decide what it is that I want to happen. Um, Another one is beneficence. Kind of a big word basically just means let's do good. Non-maleficence, another big word, basically means let's do no harm. Let's, you know, don't do bad things. Mm -hmm. Justice is a way of looking at the situation and saying, hey, am I doing the same thing for Mary 
as I am for Bob, even if Mary comes from one, uh, you know, situation that's really different than Bob, you know, it's a different race or has a different socioeconomic status or a different understanding of the situation. Am I uh, applying the the tools that I have and the information that I have and the resources in the same way for both Mary and Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and privacy, you know, we've all heard of HIPAA, right? <laughs> so, you know, HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability Something Act, um, <laughs> what is it, Portability and Accountability Act, um, you know, lets us know that if I tell something to my my physician, they're, they're going to keep that private. Mm-hmm. That's my information to, you know, somebody's not going to, without my permission, go tell my Aunt Bertha all about my business. Um, and then the other principle, the main principle, there are others, but the other main one is honesty. You know, that someone's going to give you the information that you need to make an informed decision. So those are the basic six principles that we really use. Wow, that's a lot. What is, why is it good to have an idea of this ethical framework and these principles and uh, when you're thinking about end of life and maybe talking with your family and loved ones of, um, who are caring for you? Good question. Well, it's hard, isn't it? Everything that we do in the healthcare system, a lot of times just being in the healthcare system is hard. But when someone's at the end of life or coping, coping with or dealing with or navigating a serious illness, the ante is up to cross the board. People are scared. Um, we're not really taught how to talk about issues at the end of life. You know, our world, we're living in a world that was really different than 100 years ago, where the main courses, you know, the main causes of death were accidents, injuries, childbirth. People often lived on the farm. They got an infection, and oof, two weeks later, that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we we live in a world where we can treat so many things, or at least we live in a country in the United States um, where we can treat. You know, cancer is no longer cancer is often a chronic disease. It's very manageable. So, so there's two things: one, the situation, the medical situation that we're living in creates many more opportunities for ethical dilemmas mm-hmm. than 100 years ago. And then the second thing is, hey, we're people. We bring all of our stuff to the table, our fears, our what am I going to do without mama? I'm not ready to let daddy go yet. Uh, how could this happen to my you know, little baby brother? Um, we have there's so much emotion mm-hmm. or, well, I'll, I'll save some stories till later, but... Mm-hmm. There are many, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We'll definitely get into some stories after the break. But one more question for you before we get there. Do you, do you find that COVID has heightened some of these ethical issues and some of the emotions around them? And, you know, we talk about being a person and bringing all these emotions forward in, in these situations. I feel like COVID really heightened that. Did you Do you find that that is the case as well? Mm. I think that COVID has really heightened our awareness of a lot of those things. Um, and it also has brought a lot of these issues to the, to the forefront also. But you know, the one that really jumps out to me is the issue of justice. 
Mm. So when the COVID pandemic swept our country, we, a lot of us had the ability to kind of, uh, you know, sit in the background and think, well, you know, there's, there's dynamics out there, there's inequalities out there, but I don't really have to know too much about it. And when COVID swept our country in several different ways, we, a lot of us who had the privilege to not really notice really had a chance to look at like, wow, look at what health inequalities look like in our country. Mm-hmm. Who's dying and who's not? Who's really sick and who's not? Who has access to, to treatment, to vaccines, mm-hmm. all across the board? That's, that's the, really the big one that jumps out to me, the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, but then there's also others. If we, if we dig a little bit more, we, there were issues of, um, boy, that's just a good question. It's hard to like jump into another one, but you know, there were, there were opportunities to look at like, are we causing more harm than good? Mm-hmm. If we do this, what, you know, uh, many healthcare providers, we were, we were dealing with an unknown. Mm-hmm. So people, we were saying, well, let's try and by we, I mean, we all healthcare providers in general, and I'll be honest, I'm actually a public health person, so I'm not a healthcare provider. But if I put myself in the seat, in the shoes of someone who's a healthcare provider, you know, they had to figure out like, oh, we're just sewing our parachute on the way down. Let's try this. Let's try that. And so there were, if we look at it, there was, were a lot of conversations there about uh, balancing beneficence and non-maleficence. You know, how would it, are we going to cause more harm than good if we try this? Oh, let's try putting people on their, on their bellies. Let's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, prone them. Mm-hmm. And oh, look, that caused a lot of, of good. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know that that was going to happen. Um, but you know, on the part of the providers, that raised a lot of. There was a lot of moral distress. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what's moral distress? You may ask. Well, that's when somebody, they're doing something, but they really don't. Uh, have all in this kind of situation. They're dealing with a crisis. They have to act. They see suffering. They want to address it. Um, They're not sure, am I doing the right thing? Is this going to work? And when providers are in that situation, they really are stuck between, they're squeezed between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to do what I need to do, yet this causes me all these and it causes me this suffering to figure out, did I do the right thing? Yeah. It's, so a lot of healthcare systems is focused on addressing that moral distress for healthcare providers. It's a real challenge because the, the situation is stressful enough as it is. And uh, if it's something that you haven't prepared for or haven't had conversations surrounding, then yeah, those those dilemmas and decisions are going to present themselves. We are speaking with Betsy Barton. Betsy is the Senior Associate for Learning and Research at Transitions Life Care, and we're going to continue our conversation with her surrounding ethical issues right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. 
This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to go online to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Betsy Barton. Betsy is the Senior Associate for Learning and Research at Transitions Life Care. And Mary, we're having a conversation all about ethical issues. Yes, I wanted to circle back to something before we move on a little bit, but we were just talking about moral distress. And we're seeing a bit in the news about burnout in physicians. And uh, Betsy, I want to know, could you talk to us a little bit about the impacts of moral distress? And is that something that is part of the burnout problems that we're seeing in providers and um, in our industry? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. You know, a lot of folks who, if you read the paper, maybe you've heard the term the great resignation, Mm -hmm. you know, where we as a as, you know, citizens of the United States are just really looking at our lives and thinking, gosh, what if I, you know, what am I doing? And is this what I want to be doing? And is this how I want to be living my life? And, um, you know, that's happening a lot in the healthcare arena because so many providers have been in a situation where they have been experiencing moral distress. Um, you know, and it comes back to what I said at the beginning of the of our time together of, you know, we're people, we all bring our, you know, even if we're professionals and we have a fancy degree and we went to college for a long time and professional training, we're thinking, feeling people who have, um, you know, who usually want to do, do good things in the world. And so many healthcare providers have faced situations where they can't do their job the way they've been trained to and the way they want to. They just don't have enough time. Uh, if, you know, earlier in the pandemic, the ICUs were packed and people just had to run around and do the best they could with mm-hmm. limited resources. Um, so if we look at that through an ethical lens, we want to give people time. A lot of healthcare uh, systems, for instance, have been having, I was just talking to someone yesterday, actually, who their ethics committee met every week during the pandemic. So providers could just come to the meeting and say, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. I need some, I need some perspective. I need some, I need someone to talk to. I need some processing time. And that in itself is really what ethics is. Ethics isn't a, like a court of law. I heard your side. I heard your side. This mm-hmm. is black. This is white. And I'm ruling in one favor. Ethics is let's play in the gray area. Let's talk about all the different perspectives and learn what you know Alice and Bob and Carl and David all what they're all worried about or thinking about. Um, and then let's kind of come out with a better understanding of this, the big situation. Mm-hmm. So, so ethics, looking at things through an ethical framework um, can be helpful. Mm-hmm. in addressing that, that moral distress on the part of healthcare providers. 
That's great. I want to now change gears a little bit and talk back about patients and families and the end-of-life situations that are faced. Can you give us some examples and of some ethical decisions that are, are faced by our patients and families that you've seen at end-of-life? Sure. Yeah, you know, and I think, I'm guessing that as people, you know, the listeners who are, are listening to the show right now, they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened to my great uncle, mm-hmm. or, oh, we went through that with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just didn't maybe know what to call it. So, you know, often I, I think if we just did a person on the street interview and we went up to someone with the, with the microphone and we said, you know, have you ha- ever had a big family conflict or just sadness around someone's illness or end of life, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I have. Mm-hmm. So, but if we step back and look at it, there's certain t- times, there's certain points in time where that really comes up. So one might be decision-making capacity. So if someone's really ill and they choose uh, not to be treated for a certain illness mm-hmm. and they then say, hey, you know, I know I have cancer, but I'm choosing not to do uh, a treatment for this. And then they have a healthcare power attorney, someone who could make decisions on their behalf when they can't make their decisions. And then when they get too sick to decide, someone steps in and makes a different decision. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's, that's a dilemma here, you know? And so then we would use the principles, if somebody brought that to an ethics committee, we would use the principles of autonomy uh, to say, hey, the patient let us know that this is what they wanted. And we always want to do to the extent possible. We want to do what the patient themselves wants. And we see that they um, have these conversations with their family and we know this is what they want. Mm-hmm. So in that way, we can take what is like a, you know, just to exaggerate a little, a big family fight and say, Hey, let's take this ball, big ball of string and tease out what are some of the pieces here. So we have decision-making capacity. Uh, in that situation I just named, we might also have advanced care directives. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody puts their wishes on a piece of paper and in North Carolina gets it, you know, uses a form like the five wishes form, mm-hmm. which is available for free on the Transitions Life Care website, I might add, um, Someone could fill out the five wishes form in North Carolina. You have to get it signed, witnessed by two people, and notarized. You know, in front both of those things in front of a notary. But anyway, um, you know, if somebody has an advanced directive, we want to make sure that we follow that to the extent possible because that is their autonomy speaking. That even if when, uh, you know, if I were ill, I had a five wishes form that says this is what I want blah, 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 this is what I don't want, blah, blah, blah. Even when I can't decide anymore myself, someone's going to be able to look at that and say, oh, she said, here's what she wants. She doesn't want to die with a bunch of tubes. She wants to die at home or she wants to whatever. Um, Some other places that ethical dilemmas often come up are when the provider has or the institution has different cultural or religious beliefs in general than the person or family that we're treating. So then we have to, we have to be aware, okay, the patient's autonomy is key here, not mine as the provider. So I may have one set of beliefs. They have, may have another set of beliefs. 
I need to do everything I can to understand the situation from their perspective mm-hmm. and to, to follow their beliefs. Uh, another place where it comes up is deciding whether to, you know, to withhold, withdraw um, life-sustaining treatment that's already in place. So say, for instance, my own sister had Luke Gehrig's disease, and I really loved my sister, and she was really stubborn, and she really had, um, to her, she wanted to be alive as long as she could see the smile on someone's face. And so we were, although that was a very sad situation, we were lucky because she had, she exercised her autonomy. She said what she wanted in an advanced directive. And when it, what she said is when I'm completely locked in, when I can't even gesture yes or no with my eyeballs or by twitching my finger, because that's what happens in Luke Gehrig's disease, um, then I want you to withdraw my breathing support. I want you to take me off of a ventilator. Um, so we were, we did not have an ethical dilemma there because she knew what she wanted. She put it in an advanced directive. And when the time came, two doctors decided, okay, she's locked in. And we all went out to California for many days and we hung out and we sang and she died and it was very sad it was as she wanted it to be and we supported her now look at that same situation if you have somebody who wants that but they have a spouse who's not ready to let them go or um or they do have a spouse who's not who's who's ready to let them go but then someone else a, a child comes in you know often from another state and says what are we doing here um then we often have an ethical dilemma and we need to use these principles to say, okay, let's look at the situation through the lens of autonomy, whose autonomy is most important. If we follow this family member's wishes, um, we're going against the, and, but we know that the patient, you know, person who's ill doesn't want that. Then, we're valuing their opinion over the patient's autonomy. We don't want to do that. Yeah, and that's so, that's great perspective and something that can be challenging in the moment when emotions are at an all-time high. We've been speaking with Betsy Barton. Betsy is the Senior Associate for Learning and Research at Transitions Life Care. Betsy, thank you so much for your time today and for such an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much. I was happy to be here. And don't forget, you can go to transitionslifecare.org if you want to learn more and find Plenty of resources available to you online. Transitionslifecare.org is the website to go to. We are out of time for today. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I am Jason Kong, thanking you for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care, on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.